Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm today's host, Sarah Howarth. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. This episode deals with rezoning, housing density, and, that's right, meditation. If talk about the future land use map feels overwhelming, as it sometimes does, stay tuned for ways to rejuvenate, connect with others, and relax. We talk with reporter Erin O'Hare from Charlottesville Tomorrow in the first half, and chat with Janet Evergreen of River Bluff Sanctuary in the second. For now, here's our interview with Charlottesville Tomorrow's Erin O'Hare. I'm Erin O'Hare, a reporter with Charlottesville Tomorrow. For those who don't know, what is a rezoning process? So before we define rezoning, it's helpful to know what zoning is. And zoning is a body of rules and regulations that say basically what can and cannot be built on a piece of land in the city. And all kinds of things are taken into consideration there. How busy are the roads nearby? Is it really close to a hill? Is it in a floodplain? Is it in a neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of amenities? That sort of thing. So lots of different things go into zoning. And then a rezoning is a rewrite or like a redo of those regulations, right? And Charlottesville is currently in the process of rezoning the whole city. It's a big project. What does zoning currently look like in Charlottesville and what could possibly change post-rezoning? So the vast majority, and we're talking more than 50% of the city, I couldn't find the exact number, but when I say vast majority, I mean vast majority of the city is zoned as low density residential. And in those areas, the only new housing allowed are single family houses and the occasional duplex. And residential isn't the only zoning category. There's also commercial, industrial, and mixed use. And that's in the current zoning ordinance. That will change in the new zoning ordinance. We don't know exactly what it will be at, but we have an idea because of the future land use map. So I know we've talked about this in a previous episode, but what is the future land use map and what is its role in the rezoning process? So the future land use map or flume or flum, depending on who you talk to, is it's a map that's included in the comprehensive plan, which city council adopted in November. And the future land use map serves as a guide for the rezoning process. So it says, here are the things that we think could be possible in these areas of the city. And kind of looking at it from, you know, from a distance, from a bird's eye view perspective. The way that I explained it in my story about the rezoning process is, you know, folks can think of the future land use map and the zoning code because they are related, but you can think of it sort of like an impressionist painting where the future land use map is a view of the painting from across a room, you know, yellow sunflowers in a vase. I was thinking of Van Gogh. And the land use categories within the land use map are like a closer look at the painting. So you take a couple steps forward and you're like, oh, the sunflowers are made up of individual petals. And then you go closer And you can see that each petal is made up of different brush strokes and different colors and all these different hues. And that is more of what the zoning ordinance is. It's a very up-close look, parcel by parcel, of what could happen here. So future land use map is looking at the city, different neighborhoods from a broad perspective. Zoning is down to the piece of land 
Yeah, I really loved that explanation slash metaphor for the future land use map that you included because I've read about it a few times, but it's kind of always eluded me. And thinking about it as an impressionist painting was really interesting and helpful. I'm glad. I went through a few different ones and I was like, I think this is the closest to what it means. And, you know, in that way, the the future land use map does influence the zoning code. It's They've done a lot of work saying what could be possible here. And then the zoning code will go in and say, this is what's what's feasible, not just what's possible, right? Because technology and engineering make many things possible. But what is what is actually reasonable? What can we do without disrupting a whole lot while also making sure that we have places for people to live? But sometimes it's probably not good to build something in a floodplain, especially as our climate is changing. Those are the things to be taken into consideration in the zoning as well. Right. That makes sense. With all of this rezoning and future land use map talk comes different kinds of residential areas. What are they and what do they all mean? So as we discussed a minute ago, most of the city is zoned as low density residential. And so again, in those areas, you can only build single family houses and maybe a duplex. You can't build a multiplex, which is a triplex. You can't convert a big old house into like four different apartments, right? And you also couldn't build an apartment building in those areas. So the future land use map has outlined, you know, a call for broadly increasing housing density in all areas of the city. So the future land use map that we have now breaks the former residential land use designations into more categories and different categories. So we'll have general residential, medium intensity residential, and higher intensity residential. In the current future land use map, the general residential category allows a maximum of three units of housing, like a triplex, on all residential parcels. And medium intensity allows for four to 12 units per parcel. And high intensity residential would allow 13 units or more per parcel. And again, some of that has to do with height. It's like you might be able to put 12 units somewhere, but it can't be more than three and a half stories tall. So, you know, that affects what the shape of the building would be, what the look of it would be. And officials really hope that this will result in more homeownership and rental opportunities for city residents, and that it will increase the supply of housing that is affordable for middle to extremely low income community members. But we don't know for sure because we can't predict the future. And also, you know, while there's a hope for more affordable housing and more, more affordable housing, housing in our society is a commodity. It's not a human right. So there's also a market, a housing market that will ultimately affect prices and costs like rental prices or construction prices and that sort of thing. So while officials and many city residents hope the future land use map, which will inform the zoning rewrite, will bring about more density, more places to live, more more affordable places to live, you know, a few other things have to go into that as well. And having an ideal, you know, that's based on a market is is a challenge. Yeah, and you touched on this a little bit already, but how could these changes potentially affect residents? Like you said, hopefully it is a positive outcome, but we can't really know for sure. Yeah, and and it really just depends on who you ask as to what would affect them and how. There are folks in the city who don't want more density. They like their neighborhoods as they are. They don't want more people in their neighborhood. They don't want more traffic in their neighborhood. They don't feel the need to walk to a bodega to get some fruits and vegetables. They don't want that necessarily. They don't want their neighborhoods to change. 
And there are folks who do. There are folks who are saying, I can't afford to live in the city. And I wish that there was an apartment that I could rent, you know, for my budget because that's becoming increasingly more difficult for folks. So it really depends on who you ask as to whether or not these changes would be quote unquote good or quote unquote not so good, or even some might say they're bad, but there's a lot of talk about this. And it really, again, depends on who you ask as to what could affect who and how. What will housing affordability look like after these changes? That's a really hard one to predict. I'm definitely not an economist or anything like that. So, you know, my understanding based on reporting and reading on this topic for a little bit and asking the experts is that there's a hope that this could lead to more, more affordable housing. And it seems like the city and the consultants who are working on the future land use map and the rezoning process and consulting with the planning commission, folks who, you know, live in these neighborhoods and know them really well, they're trying to use these different tools to achieve more housing and more affordable housing. And so while you can kind of line up all these things, you can put all the tools in your tool belt, you can always hope that they work and can lead to building the thing that you want. But I guess it's not a guarantee, but people are hopeful that it will lead to more density, more affordable housing. In terms of building the thing that you want, can residents become involved in the process or possibly share their opinions with neighborhood development services? Yes, people are encouraged to do that. You know, residents are the experts on their neighborhoods and residents and even folks who maybe lived in the city and had to move because they couldn't afford it. So they've moved out into the county, Albemarle County or surrounding counties. Folks are encouraged to reach out to the Seville Plans Together team, which includes neighborhood development services, the consulting team, like they're expert award-winning consultants who have been doing work with this for a couple of years now, as well as members of the planning commission, city council, community leaders, all of those folks are together on the Seville Plans Together team. And they can be reached via email at engage at SeavillePlansTogether.com. And the SeavillePlansTogether.com website has a bunch of information as well. And folks can also reach out directly to Neighborhood Development Services Director, James Freas, and he can be reached at freasj at charlottesville.gov, and that's F-R-E-A-S. And you can also call him directly at 434-970-3182. And there will be various community engagement sessions. There will be pop-ups where folks can go ask questions and say, no, okay. Well, I don't know if this would quite work because of this. And yes, folks are really encouraged to get active if they have time and to participate if they can. And then lastly, when might this long process finally be complete? I know it's probably something that has sort of a general timeline. It's probably hard to pinpoint it exactly, but I was wondering what people are thinking. There's been a lot of work leading up to this rezoning. So it's been basically years in the making that we've reached this point. But the rezoning itself is expected to take about a year, maybe a little bit longer, depending on what they hear from the community. Is there anything else you want to add? Anything else that you think might help educate listeners or anything like that? Sure. So we've been talking about the city and the county is starting their process So the city just wrapped up its comprehensive plan process and the rezoning is part of that. They are directed to do that from the comp plan and the county. So for all the county residents who are listening, that comprehensive plan process is starting 
and I will be writing about that soon. So I'll be following some of the county stuff just as I did the city. Thank you so much. Yeah, I feel like anyone who also wants to stay updated can just check out Charlottesville tomorrow as well, along with those other resources we listed earlier and get their information there. Yeah, and we do have a newsletter for Charlottesville tomorrow. So if listeners are not yet signed up for that, they can go to our website, seavilletomorrow.org and sign up for our free newsletter. Once again, the rezoning process is ongoing and community member participation is encouraged. Information can be found and input can be given in the ways Aaron described in the interview, but specific links and quick tips can be found in the podcast description for today's episode. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures, and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. Thanks for staying tuned. Here's our interview with Janet Evergreen. So could you please just start off by introducing yourself? You can talk about your practice, areas of focus, personal interests, or anything else you might want to include for the people listening. So my name is Janet Evergreen. I live overlooking the Rivanna River. That's why my business and sanctuary is called River Bluff Sanctuary. We're just over the Rivanna River. Just just behind me is the rapids of the river. So we live in the roar of the river and it's quite inspiring and beautiful to see the river every day and blue cranes fly by, the great blue herons and just we're blessed here. We do a lot of programs. I work with community teams. So often we're teams of co-teachers and assistants so that the people who come by Zoom or the few that can come during COVID in person, sometimes we meet outside so that we can meet in person. There's this feeling of circles of support in whatever we do here. They're not alone. That's a really big Part of our purpose is that there's refuge and community and support. That was a lovely introduction. I don't quite have a river outside my window, but I do have a really big tree. And whenever I get the chance, there's lots of really beautiful bluebirds and redbirds that sit in it often. And I always joke with my roommates about how someday I could definitely see myself becoming a bird watcher because they're just so beautiful and fun to watch. And I find myself just spending way longer than I think looking at them. It's really peaceful. So I can imagine how beautiful the river is. Yes, I have spent time living in very remote areas. We lived the other side of Lewisburg, West Virginia, in Alderson, West Virginia, for many years and homesteaded and grew our own food and homeschooled and had horses and chickens and really lived close, close with the cycles of the earth. So I was in my 20s, and during those years, I had three kids, and I also ran an emergency foster home. So I had five kids a lot of the time. You know, I'm not a a medical doctor, but these hands have been touching and listening to the somatic body for over 35 years. I guess we're talking over 40 years. I have to keep up with myself. (laughs) 
Yeah, it must be so rewarding to meet so many different people and connect with them in that sort of way. So you talked about a little bit of the work you've done in the past, but what would you say is your primary work that you do in the Charlottesville community? Create circles of support. That sounds really nice. I feel like especially in a time that was recently so isolating for a lot of people with the pandemic, that was probably such a lifeline for a lot of the people that you've worked with. One of the focuses of my work in all of my classes is being able to be present, awake, and aware. And in these times of great challenges, what do I need for support to be present, awake, and aware? And what does it have to do with my relevant history? What do meditation and healing mean to you? Going slow enough to feel my body and to notice, can I relax and trust myself? Or am I going into a pattern of fear or other kinds of reactivity like anger or grief? And I'm not ready to settle. Well, what do I need to settle? Those are the things that bring healing. So if I'm using a meditation practice, such as Friday mornings, we work with an ancient Thai refuge teaching called Anapanasati, which teaches us 16 breathing patterns. Not that you change your breath, but that you think about 16 concepts, Buddhist teachings, breathing fully or letting your breath do what it wants to do or noticing where there's tension, noticing where there's pleasure. There's 16. You can learn those Friday mornings. They're quite astounding. They're called 16 doorways or 16 domains. And so there's these ways that the Buddhist teachings have been so beautiful of giving a little instruction and then leaving you to your own process of reflection so that everybody's process is uniquely theirs. There's not one fits all program, but there are little clues along the way, little prompts so that you don't fall asleep on your cushion. You have a way to remember what your focus is and to concentrate in a way that brings purification, brings settling, brings pleasant sensations and another deepening and another relaxing, and another stillness to get to the mind that is so calm, so wise, so pure, indestructible, no matter what's happened, it's there. I love that you mentioned that everyone can kind of have their own unique journey. I feel like meditation is something that seems so daunting and difficult to practice, even though it is very accessible to everybody. And so that's why I was wondering how people can include piecework in their everyday lives in a way that's practical for them and not as difficult to start. Right. And again, the basic primary teaching of the Buddha is you need three things and they're called the three jewels. It's not just one thing. They're equal. These three are completely as important as the other. And one is to recognize the light and the wisdom that Buddha realized in his life, that that exists in our teachers, it exists in ourselves, the Buddha nature. 
it's the first one of the three that I'll name, but I'm not making it a hierarchy. It's a circle. They're all one thing. And the second one is the teachings, how to study, how to investigate, how to follow your curiosity and different texts and different branches of Buddhist studies. But we could also include other spiritual paths and their teachings. You know that this would be true for any path, that they have their teachings. And then you study, you really have to study. Read a little, you know, read for 10 minutes and then contemplate it. Take a walk, take a nap. Let those, that 10 minutes of study soak in. And what arises? Where do you agree? Where do you disagree? Where do you object? Third one is sacred community. We need each other. Let's go slow. Use our meditative concentration. Let's stay in our body. You know, I can feel the chair. I can lean in the chair and say, that was hard. Okay, I'm going to stay with what's hard. You know, and it's worth it. So it's like, does my meditation practice serve what's real for me in my life? That's what we're looking for. Not what I see sometimes is I can't deal with my problem, so I'm going to space out. I'm going to call it meditation, but really I'm dissociating. Where does the rubber hit the road? Can I meditate where the stress is and bring the resources for real healing? There's a lot of meditative apps now that people Mm -hmm. can use. Would you recommend those or would you shy away from them? If it was one thing that went with real life, you know, it's fine. But to do it by yourself and say what you're experiencing, maybe it's fine. Maybe it'll be okay. But for some people, it really might not be. And so the other, if you're doing it and you need help, reach out, ask for help, ask for support. And we sort of touched on this a little before, but I think a lot of people continue to struggle with the pandemic and the stressful state of the world right now. How have you been able to use your knowledge of healing to keep going in such chaotic times? So the most important thing for me is to be able to go slow when I am activated. An easy access to the teachings of self-regulation is the work of Deb Dana. She gives a metaphor of a ladder. If you're at the top of the ladder, you're safe and secure. If you're at the middle of the ladder and you're activated, things are mobilized, you're agitated, that's your sympathetic nervous system. And to be able to know my sympathetic nervous system is firing chemistry of fight or flight or maybe even give up and go into freeze. And if that's happening, then you head lower on the ladder. And that's serious. And there are many people, I'm especially concerned for children right now, where they just feel overwhelmed and done with the world. Like, I just can't cope. It's a heavy burden that I'm not going to get out from under. So what I know is that that is a state of my nervous system that can change. There's this ladder. I can go back up the ladder. I have the tools to do that. And meditation can be that hug. To 
To join the community meditation and find more peace-related resources, head over to JanetEvergreen.com. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Sarah Howarth. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Merwen Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard. Oh, oh, oh.